American League. Except, except, these could be signed by the Clipper himself. That would be a $400 ball at least. And for starters, Joe would autograph the 15,000 balls he was demanding, free from the Rawlings Company. You know, for use of his name. 15,000 custom balls, a few months to sign them, and that, even at wholesale, would be a cool three million. In cash. Hundreds, please. Joe's favorite. Of course, no one was going to tell that story on Joe DiMaggio Day, or write it in the papers. So they wrote about remembered autumns of glory, about the love affair of the hero and the Yankee fans. For sixty years, writers had to make up what Joe cared about. As Joe himself once explained, they used to write stories about me like they were interviewing me, and never even talked to me. But now, most of the guys who knew him, who could cobble up a good DiMaggio quote, were gone. So Mike Lupica from the Daily News, Joe's favorite among the new generation, would settle that day for the wistful, so many memories, so many seasons. And for the New York Times, Dave Anderson, one of the last who knew Joe went, would write, After the ceremony, he returned to that shadowy corridor behind the dugout, sat down, opened the box with the World Series rings, and stared at them. Aren't they beautiful, he said. The fact was, DiMaggio was never wistful. At that moment, he was furious. And he never spent a moment in his life to marvel at the beauty of anything, except maybe abroad, which wasn't marveling. That was wanting. Wanting, he did. That was why he hauled himself out of bed at four in the morning, coughing up blood from the cancer he wouldn't speak about, to get to the airport to fly to New York in time for his day. That was want. That was DiMaggio. If you lost track of that hunger, that toughness, you lost his core. There wasn't another 83-year-old in the country who could have held up that day, looking good. Not with Joe's irritated eye, something like chronic conjunctivitis, the old arthritis, the scoliosis that hunched his back into a painful curve, the pacemaker that kept his heart beating, the Lasix, a horse diuretic that kept the fluid away from the pacemaker and made Joe P. seem like every ten minutes. And now the cancer that he would only call pneumonia. Maybe he had pneumonia, too. That wouldn't have mattered. Joe was going to make it through. Nobody else had his grit. He always played hurt. Or his focus. Joe would bring those balls home. Nothing stopped him. Nothing turned his head. You could admire him for that. He was one of a kind. I also remember the day five years back when I was starting this book, first asking about DiMaggio. I had a long, rambling interview with an old baseball man named Frank Slocum. He'd spent his whole life in the game. He'd known DiMaggio for 60 years, saw him when he came up. He'd met Joe's brothers, parents, wives, saw him every which way. We talked for two hours, then three. Finally, I put away my notebook. I'll tell you one more thing, Slocum offered, after I'd stood up to leave. You go out there and ask around. If you meet any guy who says... Oh, I know someone just like that DiMaggio. I'll tell you this. That guy's a liar.
Joe DiMaggio sat on the tar in the North Beach playground with his back against the wall on the Powell Street side, his legs cocked in front of him like a couple of pickets. At fifteen, Joe was mostly legs, leg bones more like it, and a head taller than his friends. It was Niggy Foe who gave him the nickname Koshilungi. That meant long legs in Sicilian. Joe was at the playground most days, but like today, not exactly with them. He'd come out of his house down the hill from Taylor Street, but he'd sit apart, watching in silence, arms draped across his knees in a pose of solitary sufficiency. Joe could play, but you had to get him to play. The reason he'd play was he wanted to win something. Sometimes everybody threw in a nickel or a dime, and they'd play winner-take-all. Then Joe would play for sure. But playing just to play? Well, mostly he'd sit. On the left, past third base, was the boys' bathroom. Joe spent a lot of time in there playing cards. Joe was good at cards, but that was like baseball. He wasn't just playing. Joe and Niggy Marino used to box the cards, fix the deck, or they'd play partners and kick each other to signal for discards. Five kicks meant to throw the five, two for the deuce, and so on. By the time they finished, their legs were black and blue, but they went home with a few extra nickels, money from the patsies. Past the outfield, past the basketball and tennis courts and the open swimming pool, Columbus Avenue cut the playground off at an angle. Columbus was the hub for Italian San Francisco. A block and a half up Columbus lay the expanse of Washington Square, the Gran Piazza, like a carpet of green spread in front of the great Saints Peter and Paul's church. On the grass in front of the church, the men of the community gathered every afternoon for coffee, maybe a little wine, an argument, though Joe's dad seldom made an appearance. Giuseppe DiMaggio wasn't much for talk. Near the church on Columbus stood the other institutions of the grown-up world, the community hall, the library, but no one Joe knew went to the library. The boys were more interested in other cultural sites on Columbus, like La Rocca's Corner, where the wise guys played cards all day. Nearby were the nightclubs, with the tall, gorgeous showgirls, who'd come from all over, though not from North Beach. No Italian family had showgirls. Two blocks east was Francisco Junior High, where nobody had made him do anything. Actually, Joe wasn't stupid, but he never wanted to open his mouth, say something wrong, and look stupid. That came from home. In the flat on Taylor Street, they talked Sicilian. Everybody laughed at Joe's lousy Sicilian. Even his little brother Dami made fun of him. And shame was what Joe couldn't stand. He was a blusher, so he just grew silent. His sisters talked about him behind his back, thought he was slow. Anyway, Joe didn't have to talk at school. None of the teachers made him talk. They just moved him on year after year. It was like no one even knew he was there. It was movies that brought the roar of the twenties to North Beach. Joe liked that desperate squadron of airmen in the Dawn Patrol or Tommy Guns in the streets of Chicago, Edward G. Robinson in Little Caesar, or maybe best of all, Gary Cooper, the Virginian. Outside the picture shows, it was like the boom of the twenties never happened, not in North Beach. In Joe's world, the Papa still woke in the middle of the night and walked down the hill to the wharf and their boats. They'd be back in the afternoon, 
each with a catch to sell, with nets to fold, with maybe a secret paper sack, illegal striped bass to carry home for supper. In Joe's world, meat was still for Sundays, and Mondays when the mama made the leftover scraps into stew or soup. Maybe Joe's house was poorer than most. Nine kids, and a dad whose boat wasn't big enough for crabbing. But everybody had leftovers on Monday. And the same pasta underneath. All the boys on that ball field could trace their personal histories back to the rocky Sicilian coast. All the parents came from the same poor towns. Joe didn't want any part of a boat. He couldn't stand the sea, the smell of the fish. Afternoons, he made the trip downtown to sell newspapers. That's how he brought money home, and escaped having to help his dad unload and fold the nets on Fisherman's Wharf. That's why he was waiting at the playground that afternoon. He and Frank Venezia would always share a nickel tram fare down to Market Street to pick up their papers. But Frank was still batting, piggy on a bounce, and he told Joe to cool his heels. Just a few minutes more, he was on a streak. Joe sold the call at Sutter and Sansom, near the Market Street trolleys. It was three cents for the paper, and the kid who sold it got to keep a penny. On a good day, you'd come home with a buck and a half, two bucks or more if the World Series was on, or Lindbergh was flying. That was the year Frank and Joe had gotten close. They'd always been friends, but since that past September, they'd spent just about every day together. What happened was... They got to Galileo High School, and that's where their string ran out. They were hopeless from the day they walked in the door. They didn't even get into gym class. They got put into ROTC, R-O-T-C, the fucking army class. As if Joe was going to march around with a stick on his shoulder, like a stronzo. Forget it. So Joe just stopped going, and Frank started playing hooky too. They had the same routine. They'd get up in the morning, get ready for school. They'd have some bread, milk with a little coffee. Walk out the door and turn down the sidewalk toward Galileo High. Then they'd hang around Marina Park all morning, killing time. About three o'clock, Joe would have to check in at home. That was the rule in his family, and Joe obeyed rules. He'd bang the door like he was coming home from school, say hello, make sure no one knew anything. Frank had no one to check in with at home. He'd go to the playground to see if he could get into a game for a while before they had to go sell papers. After Frank made Joe wait for Piggy on a bounce, Joe had to take the streetcar downtown on his own nickel. After that, Joe wouldn't talk to Frank for a year. When Joe bombed out of school, his father was disgusted and affirmed. What's the point of being Sicilian? if you're not convinced the world will do you dirt in the end. Giuseppe DiMaggio was a man of the old verities. Hard work will maybe earn you a living, if you keep your nose clean and don't say a word. Without hard work, you're a bum. Magabono. He was a small man, but thick through the chest, shoulders, and neck from hauling up net through the water. He wore a brown fedora, even in shirt sleeves, and like the other men of the wharf, a sash to hold his pants up. He had a small old country mustache. Sometimes he clenched in his teeth a short black cigar of the sort the fishermen called Toscani. He fished six days a week, made some wine in the basement, raised nine kids, 
and kept his troubles to himself. Giuseppe had come to America in 1898, when his in-laws wrote and told him the fishing was good. After four years, he sent for his wife and daughter. San Francisco was a big town, worldly, even elegant in spots. Giuseppe's guttural Sicilian patois marked him from the first syllable as low class or none. Giuseppe Di Maggio kept his head down. His old double-prowed boat was too small for crab or salmon, too small for anything outside the Golden Gate, in the open sea, where the rich fishing lay. So Giuseppe only fished the bay. Most days he simply hauled up bait fish, nothing worth eating, and sold his catch to more adventurous men. Giuseppe Di Maggio never talked about his boys going far. He talked about them going on to his boat, to learn their trade, to work hard, so they could sleep in a house with a roof. And Giuseppe had his way. His lessons took, at least with the first boys, Tom and Mike. By eighth grade, both boys had left school, and Tom, confirmed in his father's trade, got his own boat. Mike was supposed to work his father's boat and train Vince, the next in line. But that's where Giuseppe's bad luck started, with the third son, Vince, a city kid, a playground kid, a thoroughly American boy. Vince had a love of music and a beautiful voice. His dream was to be an operatic tenor, or maybe a singer with a big band, or maybe a great ball player. When Vince got an offer to play ball in the lumber leagues of Northern California, Giuseppe told the boy he couldn't go. So Vince faked his age and ran away to play ball. Vince was no longer welcome at home. Giuseppe had lost a son. And so the father's wary eye fell upon the fourth son, his namesake, Joe. Giuseppe wouldn't make the boy fish. And he might have, too, if it hadn't been for Rosalie, his wife. She'd watched Giuseppe with Vince, and she'd held her tongue but she wasn't going to lose another son. Il est bon, lâche sta, she told Giuseppe. He's a good boy. Leave him alone. As it happened, by 1930, Joe had walked away from baseball. If he played anything, it was tennis. Mostly, he just didn't play. His attitude on baseball wasn't too far from his dad's. There was no money in it, so what was it good for? But he found the game again in 1931 when Batman Affo and Fr